moment for all of us. So please come, let's welcome her. Welcome. Oh yeah, let's see if it's working. Is it working? Let me see, is there a light on? I'm not flashing my undies, am I? Nah. <laughs> is it working? Pardon? Plugged in properly. Yeah, it's plugged in. Is it? How about we rip it out? Here we go. Hello, hello. Testing. Hello, hello. Can we just swap mics? Do you want us to swap mics, Andrew? Okay, sorry. Yeah, we're only getting one flash. See that? Oh, yeah, it's flashing, but then it's... God must be going to do something good. <laughs> Whenever there's technical issues, something really extraordinary happens. It's like, oh, God's going to move in a big way today. <laughs> and the Lord said, let there be sound. And there was sound. <laughs> Thanks, Mel. Thanks, Andrew. See, and it takes an Italian in Australia to get us out of trouble. Good morning. So good to be with you, and um, I'm not just going to do a standard sermon this morning, if that's all right. <laughs> We're going to do a bit of testimony time, and I think I just love. I had no idea which songs you were going to sing today. In fact, I've never heard any of those, but so spot on for the message. So yeah, I just love how God does that. It's just amazing. All right, so I'm actually going to start today with a film clip of a music video from a few years back. Anyone here heard of Kelly Clarkson? Yeah. 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 So she's got a song called Because of You. And when you watch the video clip along with the song, it's actually talking about generational damage. And so what we mean by that is that um, the pain and the damage or the sins or whatever of the fathers can transfer through. And we know even biologically now with cellular memory that that's actually the case. Doesn't mean it's the end of the story. But I want you to pay attention to this clip and the story that the video tells in it um, because it ties in very much with what we're going to talk about today. So I'm just going to sit back down for a minute um, while you take a look. Thank you. 
Yeah, I think I will. Yeah. You just feel free to, I don't know if you guys I forgot to speak about it. That's alright, I'll just do it. We'll let it flow. Okay, so what happens at the end of the video clip that you didn't see is that, you know at the start where he went, her husband went to throw the family photo down and then the little younger girl of her was showing her all the scenes where she'd had her generational damage growing up. At the end of that clip, it goes back to that first scene where he's about to throw the family photo and destroy their family and she takes his hand and pulls it down and they hug and they forgive and it breaks that cycle of generational damage. And I'm sure just even seeing that clip, there'll be people in this room that can relate to elements of that. Whether they've had their tr you've had your trust broken in some way, whether you've been abused, whether it's been somebody that's offended you or hurt you, maybe you've even had health challenges or things that have come through your family line, whatever that looks like. You know, we all have that commonality. We're all sitting here with our own stories. And, you know, at Brave Enough, and, and for me personally, that's the ministry that God's given me to do at Brave Enough. It's to help people get unstuck. It's to just be able to realise that everybody has a story, that your story matters. And if we can deal with that, if we can take that story to God and know that the start of our story, whatever ha has happened at the start of that, doesn't have to be the way that it ends. Okay? Because once we emerge stronger, we can then help the next person up. Amen? So I'm going to go a little bit deeper today with a little bit of my story, just to give you an example, because I'm sure there will be people in this room that haven't, um, read the book or heard that stuff and I don't want to leave anyone behind and assume that there may be people even that are in the room never even walked into a church before I didn't grow up a Christian either so I know what that's like to walk in and think you know why am I here I don't kind of get it um, but you, you know you've been drawn or you've sensed that that's where you need to be right now it's no mistake that you are sitting here in this room today God has you here for a purpose and a reason and a season. So when I was um, little, like my mum and dad had me, um, by the time I was two they'd divorced and by the time I was four they'd both remarried. And so I went to live with my mum and my stepdad um, in Benalla, which is a few hours away from here. 
Um, so, yeah, grew, was born in Geelong, though. So my grandparents still live down there. I'd lived with them for a couple of years after mum and dad got divorced. My grandma was the most beautiful, caring lady. I've got very fond memories of um, laying in my bed at night as a little girl and her stroking my head and singing Brahms lullaby and making me custard and plums and beautiful roast lamb every Sunday. You'd walk in the house and it'd be wafting down the, the lounge room and I, I'd feel really safe with her. Now, she wasn't a Christian either. Later in life, she'd grown up a strict Methodist. Um, both of my grandfathers, I think, were lay Methodist ministers, but she married an atheist Freemason who was a broad Scotsman and knew what he wanted when he wanted it. Um, but he would also give you the shirt off his back. It was just very cultural. So she kind of left all of that stuff and just adopted what he did. Because back in those days, it was kind of a, a thing. You know, the woman was subservient to the husband and, and they did all of that. So my mum never grew up as a Christian or knowing any of that stuff. But my grandma still had those values and I'm so grateful for that because that gave me a real sense of what was right and wrong. So mum and I moved up to Benalla with my stepdad. He was an ambulance officer, had a very stressful job obviously um, back in those days on call, keeping the ambulance at home and all of that. Um, we got along really well. He had a daughter about a year older than, than me so I had an instant older sister. Um, that we would see every fortnight and we'd come down to Geelong, stay with my grandparents for the weekend for his access visit and go. My dad was living in Warrigal, so I only saw him a couple of times a year um, with, with his wife. And um, everything was all hunky-dory. Um, they both had a new baby, so I had a sister with my dad and I had a little brother with my, from my mum. Um, and hadn't got to meet my sister yet. And so I was super excited when Dad had called up and said, hey, um, I've got my pilot's licence and I'm going to fly from um, Warrigal to Benalla in my friend's plane and I'm going to pick you up and take you in an aeroplane. And I'm like, oh, how cool is that? I've never been on a plane. And, you know, you can imagine for a six-year-old that's about to meet her baby sister for the first time and going to get to go in an aeroplane, that's pretty exciting. So he picks me up in a taxi, we drive to the airport, jump on the plane. It must have been a little Cessna or something, it was tiny. We're going up and I'm, Daddy, Daddy, go through the clouds. And we get up there and um, all of a sudden there's just fog. And I'm like, no, Daddy, Daddy, go through the clouds. And he said, this is the clouds. And I'm like, well, that's not very fun. <laughs> I reckon about five minutes later, I got airsick. I start throwing up all over the plane, exhausted myself, fell asleep for the rest of the trip. And that was my first time in a plane with my dad. So proud of him that he's a pilot. What I didn't know at the time was that he was an alcoholic and um, a very high-functioning one at that. He's a very bright guy. But he went through a stage where he actually had found Jesus. And funnily enough, I found out years later that um, after they'd moved back to Geelong, they actually attended what is now Cadinia Church. And I only found this out um, around the time that my dad passed away. So at this time, I'd not known church. So I get over there, they throw a birthday party for me because they'd missed my birthday. I meet my little sister who's by now nine months old for the first time and we go off to church. 
And to this day, I can still remember the layout of the church. There were these three aisles. We had communion. I felt really safe there. It was a beautiful experience. I came home that afternoon um, on the Sunday afternoon and Dad sat me on his knee and told me all about my Father in Heaven who loves me. And he gave me one of those big, thick, illustrated children's Bibles. And um, it was a beautiful time. And then we went back to the airport, got on the plane, flew back to Benalla, and then we're saying goodbye on the front lawn. Taxis pulled up. And um, we were saying goodbye. And I just remember getting a feeling in my gut that something was really wrong. And I couldn't put my finger on it. Some people would call it women's intuition or divine discernment. And so I remember watching Dad drive off in the taxi and not taking my eyes off it until it went around the corner and I couldn't see it anymore. And that was the last time I saw my father again until I was 16 years old. He'd made the decision to cut contact, hadn't even told my stepmom he was going to do it, and just left. And so over the next few months, my stepdad obviously realised that my dad wasn't going to be part of my life anymore. Um, he'd never paid maintenance but did manage to get his pilot's licence um, and wasn't sort of just committed, I guess, as a dad in that respect. And I'm not saying that was an easy decision for him, but it was a decision that he made that had consequences in my life. Um, pretty soon after, my brother was born and um, I loved that. I loved having a little baby brother. I mean, what six-year-old girl doesn't want a living doll <laughs> in their house? Um, and I just, you know, I loved him to bits and I was really happy. But then my stepdad almost felt like overnight started to change. And it was like he had his kids and his boy and all of a sudden um, I went from feeling very loved and secure even though my parents were divorced to being not only abandoned by my dad and ultimately my stepmom too even though it wasn't her fault to my stepdad now hating me, putting me down, um, got into a lot of um, emotional abuse. I remember when I was about nine years old, um, he asked me to clean my room. And I was copying my stepsister, who could be as cheeky as she liked and would never get in trouble. And um, I said, why should I? And he called me a very bad swear word, grabbed me by the back of the hair, and smacked my head into the wall. The name he called me was the equivalent of a female prostitute and I didn't even know what the word meant until a few years later. And then, of course, reflecting back on that, um, realised the insult that he'd given me. Um, Mum didn't know about that physical side of things. Another time I was sitting on the toilet and um, some friends of our sons had broken some doors that were... Um, made to cover a sand pit that we had outside to keep the cats out. And he came in and started screaming at me about breaking the doors and not respecting property. I'd had nothing to do with it. Mum was a witness to the fact that the boys had put their feet through the doors. Um, and he got into such a rage that he punched a hole through the wall while I was trapped in the toilet and couldn't get out. Um, there was another occasion where he pushed my mum so hard against the wall that the whole wall cracked around her like a roadrunner cartoon. 
he never punched or did any of that stuff, but I was always told how stupid I was, that I would never amount to anything. I would sit there and do my maths homework and he would tell me how stupid I was because I didn't understand it when the reality was that I was so afraid of his abuse that I just learnt to shut off and shut down um, to the point that even to this day I can get so absorbed in um, work or what I'm doing that even my husband and kids have to actually touch my hand or get my attention because I can get so absorbed, I can just get into that stuff. And so I was always in a position where I was living on eggshells, walking on eggshells. My mum at this point didn't know how to cope with it. She's um, somebody who probably, you know, she doesn't like arguments and fights and things. She's very much a peacemaker. So she just wouldn't stand up for me at all. And she actually had postnatal depression and was hospitalised for some time which meant that um, for a few weeks I had to be at home with him um, without then any you know, protection or anything like that. And so while mum was sometimes physically present, she wasn't able to be emotionally present. And as a child, you don't understand those struggles with anxiety and depression and those things. So for me, it just meant that I had three major abandonments within a year. Um, and I had to learn to sort of survive on my own. So I would talk to stuffed toys on my bed and I would dream about being an actress and being on a country practice. And I don't think it was so much about wanting to be an actress. When I've analysed that later on, I think it was just that they seemed like such nice, safe people. You know, I could go and be on that show and play with Fatso the Wombat and be around nice people in Wandon Valley. <laughs> And so, you know, that was what it was like growing up. I had, um, wasn't popular at school, you know, I had my little core of friends, but I got teased at school a lot and picked on and bullied and all of that kind of stuff with some very unsavoury names that I was called at times. Uh, then in about year nine, my maths teacher slammed a metre ruler down because I didn't understand a maths question and told me to tell myself in front of the whole class that I was stupid. Parent-teacher interviews came in, my stepdad and my mum came in and my stepdad was just agreeing with the teacher about how I don't pay attention and why I don't pay attention. And so got to about 14, mum and my stepdad split up and he moved out and I cannot tell you how relieved I felt um, that he was gone but I was so petrified that they were going to make up and that he would come back home again and I begged mum to not let him come back you know I could finally walk in the door and just relax and mum and I were starting to build some relationship so this one day I'd um, had a, an English um, creative writing piece that I had to do and I decided to base it on Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Disclaimer, I wasn't yet a Christian. How many people have seen Silence of the Lambs? You're all Christians and you're watching Silence of the Lambs. I don't feel so bad now. <laughs> to be fair, I snuck it and watched it because mum had recorded a, a pirated copy on a DV, uh, no, VHS. So <laughs> there you go. So I, I based it on, on Hannibal Lecter and, and just made it really real and I gave it to mum to read and she was, she just, did you write this or did you copy it? 
I've got, no, I didn't copy it, I wrote it. And I was a bit offended because I was like, I want to copy stuff. She goes, Danny, this is so good. She said, this is like something someone would write in a novel. Well, I had a lot of time for imagination because I was always trying to not be in the world, right? In the real world. I was off in La La Land. I loved it there. It was a great place. Somewhere over the rainbow, The Wizard of Oz. That was like my favourite movie. You know, I could like tell you the opening line to that movie. Oh, Toto, did she hurt you? And the last one is, oh, Annie M, there's no place like home. So when she then says, hey, you, you know, you've actually got a gift for writing, and, and I'm like, wow. But you know what the biggest thing was? It wasn't just the compliment of my writing, it was the fact that finally mum saw me. Finally, she was proud of me. And it wasn't that she wasn't ever, but it just it, it felt that way because she couldn't express it a lot. And so that was awesome. So then my stepdad comes over to have an access visit with my brother he's going to take him for the weekend and mum's really proud so she gives him this piece of work I've done look what Danny wrote look how good it is and he was like read it and said she can't hand this in they'll think she's a nutcase rah, 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 rah. <coughs> well hell hath no fury like a woman scorned and all of those years of oppression and abuse and anger just rose up in me I was so fiercely angry and I turned to him and I pointed him in the face and I said, you know what, you're not my dad, you don't even live here anymore, so why don't you just off? Anyone want to take a guess at what he did? No, didn't slap me? Sorry, what was that? No, didn't ask for forgiveness? No, didn't tear it up? He just left. He just turned around, walked out the door. And in that moment, see, he realised he had no more power over me anymore. And I, because I'd realised that too. Mum's reaction when I said that to him, she just had this half smile on her face, gaping mouth, and she just went, Danny, like as if you shouldn't have done that, but good on you kind of thing. And so from that moment, I did something that as a Christian knowing better now, you should never, ever, ever do. And that was an internal vow that no one would ever have that kind of control over me ever again. And so if kids at school or my teachers or whatever, you know, were rude or disrespectful, I would just use some language and tell them where to go. I became really sort of hyper-defensive, because finally I had a voice. Praise God, I use it for preaching and teaching now and not swearing and cussing out at people. But that, it, did, it was something that needed to happen, right? I'm not advocating bad language, I'm just saying there comes a point where you have to make a stand, but when you make a stand and you use words like, I'm not going to let... Who do we take the power away from? We take it away from them, but we also take it away from God. Because God is the one that should have the power over our lives. And when we take things into our own hands like that, it means that we open the door for the enemy. Because we're doing it all in our own strength. 
And so I became hyper, hyper independent. I couldn't wait till I turned 18 so I could get my licence and get out of there. So at this point, I hit about 16, decide I want to get in touch with my dad, find out um, I've got um, actually four other siblings. So I had my sister, Kate, and then a brother and two more sisters. The youngest one was four. And I had 21 cousins and seven aunties and uncles. My pa had died, but I still had my nana. So I got to meet all of the family. And, you know, it was like... Um, really exciting for me because all of a sudden I went for this whole other family. Dad was no longer going to church um, and was back into alcoholism again. A high-functioning alcoholic had his own family. It was all very much a honeymoon thing for about 12 to 18 months. And then I noticed that Dad didn't pay really attention to my siblings either, that my stepmom really battled along bringing the kids up for the most part on her own and dealing with a lot of that stuff or the, you know, I wasn't the new toy anymore. And so I end up really, I guess, losing my dad again in that sense because I was never able to really have that connection as much as I tried. And so that was a bit tumultuous. Um, my grandma, however, was always that stabilising factor in my life. She would stand up for me. She would stand up against my stepdad all of that. So she was always my safe place. So that's where I moved back to Geelong straight after high school, as soon as I could, moved back in with my grandparents. Um, then I met my husband, Mark, that handsome chap that you can't have in the front row. Um, started playing badminton. He played for Victoria. And um, so I'd go and watch him train and then he asked me out on a date, which, trust me, he's really shy. That was like a miracle in itself. <laughs> so we started dating and um, Mark had some issues too with um, um, binge drinking, so binge drinking alcoholic, which I didn't know at the time. Um, we ended up having to work on that and resolve it we ended up um, at that stage, we weren't in church yet, so we bought a house, moved in together. And then about three months before we were due to get married, I decided I need to get back to church, need to get back to God. Um, because the interesting thing about that journey was that, remember I said my dad had sat me on his knee and told me all about my father in heaven who loves me? That's really the only knowledge I'd had of God until when I was about 15... My um, English teacher um, was sort of paying attention to my journal entries. At the same time, some friends over the road's daughter, who was an adult, um, was a born-again Christian, went to an AOG church and came up and knew I was struggling, that I was in a bit of trouble and asked me to church. And I was like, you know, I believe in God. I remember, you know, all of that. I've, I've always sort of believed it. And I went in and, and I got saved that day. My English teacher was also a Christian, read the journal entry about me becoming a Christian because I wrote it in my diary and said, hey, if you ever want to come to church. And that their church, there was a, it was a Baptist church, they just lived around the corner. So when my friend Susie went home after I'd got saved, God had already lined up another church for me to go to. And I hungered for that in those last few years of my high school. Every Sunday I could... I could go and I could be with God and I could be with people that really took an interest in, and loved me and I got baptised. 
but I didn't have anyone to really mentor me. So I was a Christian, I knew the basics of the Bible, I had a good news Bible, that's all I had, New Testament. And I learnt what I could and I did what I could, but by the time I'd met Dad and then finished high school and just wanted to be back with my grandparents, it was easier to just try and fit in with a group of friends than it was to try and find someone to mentor me in my Christian walk because I didn't know that's what I needed, right? You don't know what you don't know. So by the time Mark and I are about to get married, we're three months out, and I said to him, we need to get back to, to church. We've been doing the wrong thing. Can you imagine a young man about to get married already living with someone, what they want to do? And I said, do you know what? We can't sleep together anymore until we're married. And we didn't. And do you know what? Miraculously, he's just fine with it. It was not an issue. So he'd overcome this alcoholic stuff. Now he's not able to make love. And he's just, do you know what I mean? God was on this guy. He believed in God too. had no idea. So we get married It's all awesome, had a wonderful first year, our first wedding anniversary. I find out I'm I'm pregnant with our first baby and I'm like super excited. I'm like, we're going to give this kid everything I never had and, you know, it's going to be awesome and I went and bought like one of those old-fashioned wooden cradles, you know, with the turned wooden rails and I sanded it all back and I stained it mahogany and I got it all ready and I had a little you know, shh, baby sleeping doorknob thing and got an intercom and started getting things ready and I was only about six weeks pregnant. I just I was so excited. Went and told Mark's parents straight away, like it was just awesome. Um, then at 15 weeks, I went and had my ultrasound. Everything's going great. Um, then a week later, I got bitten by a spider and I ended up on crutches and... Um, didn't think much of it. Um, it was due to have my 18-week ultrasound where you get to maybe find out the sex of the baby and do all of that. Um, and I started to have some bleeding. And I was like, oh, man, you know. But it wasn't a lot, and I thought, you know, I just should go to the hospital, get checked out. So I go up to the hospital. I just went into the maternity area. They got me in. They put a Doppler on my tummy couldn't hear a heartbeat and they said look that's not unusual at 17 weeks so you know we'll do an ultrasound and they got in there and I could see my baby um and then the doctor was just um putting the sonograph over and not saying anything and I could see the baby and I could see it wasn't there was no movement and she's trying to sort of jiggle my belly and um there's no heartbeat and I knew what was wrong but I just Do you know what I mean? It was such a cold moment of just this can't be happening, this disbelief. And I kept saying to her, what's what's wrong with my baby? What's wrong with my baby? And she just wouldn't answer and she just kept checking and looking. And in the end, I screamed at her and I said, tell me what's wrong with my baby? And she said, I'm sorry, your baby's died. And at that moment, I can't even describe it any other way than that I felt like someone had just just pushed their hand right through my chest and ripped my heart out. My whole world came crashing down because everything had finally started falling into place and it had been ripped away. And so um, there was a whole process of... um, 
having to have the baby. I had to fight to be able to be induced to be able to give birth to my baby instead of just having a procedure done to take the baby away. Um, the good thing about that was that I was able to hold my little baby and he was about the size of my hand. His little hands were the, the same size as the top of my finger. He had little toes that were fully formed. Mark's got a really long, big toe. <laughs> and um, we had a little boy and we called him Jackson and he had the same toes as his dad. The next two babies I had also had the same toes. But Logan's got mine, so <laughs> came with the baby. But, and I remember just holding him. And he's lifeless and I'm just thinking about all the things I'm never going to get to do. I'm never going to get to blow, blow raspberries on his belly. I'm never going to get to see him open his eyes. I'm never going to get to hear him say, I love you, mummy. I'm never going to get to hold his, his children, my grandchildren. And we were then told because he wasn't 20 weeks or 500 grams that we couldn't register his birth and we couldn't have a funeral and we couldn't have him buried in a cemetery. So we took him home and we buried him in our garden and we called up a random Baptist minister and had him do the, um, the funeral for us. Twelve months later... Um, we found out we could have had him buried in a cemetery. <laughs> we, couldn't have had, we couldn't have him registered, but we could have him buried in a cemetery. And that was pretty heartbreaking too because it felt like um, nobody was recognising that our baby was our baby. You know, it was, it was awful. Did you know a baby in utero at six weeks has fingerprints? It has an identity that God's given it. And then I would have silly people that would say, oh, babies won't be in heaven. You know, if you've been told that rubbish, get your Bible out. Because some people have this silly belief that if a baby is under seven years of age and not at an age of reason that it's not saved because it can't make a decision for itself. What a load of rubbish. In the Bible, you hear about um, Ramah crying out for children that were lost, two babies two years old and under, remember, were massacred in Jesus' time. But there's a prophecy earlier, in, I think it's in Isaiah, that talks about um, her crying out in the desert and to not be dismayed because her children are going to come into their own land again, that they're going to be raised up. So at that point, I'm like, Mark, we need to get, we really do, we've, we've got to get back to church. And we'd been looking for a church while I was pregnant. And I said, I want to know where Jackson is and am I going to see him again? And I had so many questions. And I would get my Bible out and I would print off like the Gospels and be comparing them on the floor. I just went ballistic. I had a guy at my work, I was working at Centrelink at the time as well as doing some TV acting and presenting like extra work and stuff and, and this guy at work, his name was Colin Holman and everyone at work used to call him Colin Holy Man because he was such a straight, straighty 180 Christian, right? And so um, I knew that about Colin so if I had a question I'd go and ask Colin and he'd say, well, the, well, the answer's this but you look up in the Bible, don't take my word for it, which was such a gift, right? Because I was reading it for myself. 
So I'm working at Centrelink in a call centre and I've got a Bible in my drawer. And so every time I had a question, and I was probably almost thinking about that more than doing my job, right? I'd go and ask Colin, then I'd come back and I'd be like, shh. Anyway, finally he gets sick of it and he goes, I go to ask him a question. He goes, Danielle, have you ever heard of a concordance? No, what's that? Well, it's this book, right? And it's got all the different words in the Bible. And you can look it up and it'll tell you all the references to that thing in the Bible. So you can look up everything from death to faith to bucket <laughs> and it'll give you all the references. So, all right, well, where do I get that? Oh, the Keswick Bookshop. Well, where's that? Oh, it's on Packinger Street. Oh, yeah, I know that shop. It's around the corner from my house. So I go and I grab myself a, um, a concordance and I would just study topic whatever topic that I had a question about. And so I grew really quickly. Um, within 18 months, we'd had another baby, our daughter Hannah. Um, within 18 months, I was preaching, and within three years, we had our call to ministry, and I've never been to Bible school. There was just a quickening that the Holy Spirit did in that space. Um, and I'd started studying um, counselling at the time because I thought, you know what, in amongst all the pain and the life experiences I've had, my God has shown up every single time. Whether I was stuck in my house with debilitating anxiety like I was after the grief of Jackson, whether it was my third baby, Logan, who was diagnosed at 20 weeks gestation with a hole in the heart, within three days and prayer, God miraculously healed him with a follow-up ultrasound that the doctors could not explain that he's... His healing had gone. You know, we just heard about, read, uh, sorry, sang together about a song right up there that said, don't tell me he can't do it. Don't tell me he can't do it. And you know what? You guys have all ministered to me with that music today because I've had another struggle with anxiety at the minute. God's calling me over to America to be part of a Christine Kane's mentoring program in two months' time. And the enemy is just bang. You saw with the technical stuff, the attack. But don't tell me that God can't do it. Right? And it's so easy to get stuck. And, you know, it's so easy to hear my story and go, man, your parents sucked. (laughs) But you know what? They all had their own journeys and their own stories. So let me tell you about my dad. I'll just do him. But they've all got their own stories. He was stuck in alcoholism, right? Stuck in disconnection, workaholism, all of that stuff. As a little boy, he was one of seven. His dad, my pa, was an alcoholic. He was a prisoner of war in Germany. So he's come back from the war, no doubt with PTSD, medicating with alcohol, meets my grandma, gets her pregnant. He's trapped in a relationship. They have seven kids. Back in those days, it wasn't to help with Centrelink or whatever, so they're both working, trying to bring up these seven kids. One of them was very sick, my uncle Ian, and he spent about three years in hospital um, in Melbourne. So my grandma was also going back and forth up to him. My dad's like a middle child, if that's not bad enough, (laughs) but in amongst seven kids. His next door neighbour sexually abused him. And so he didn't know how to navigate any of that stuff. He's got the example of an alcoholic and all of that crazy stuff. He couldn't give me what he'd not received himself, right? My stepdad had his story. My mum had her story. And, you know, 
here's the interesting thing. My dad was stuck in his stuff. My granddad was stuck in his stuff. They were always at loggerheads, right? A couple of years ago, my dad um, moved back to Geelong. Still didn't come and visit and stuff, but we'd make the effort and do that thing. We'd had conversations over the years and there was some amount of restoration. But he was just never present. He'd fall asleep on the couch or be drinking or whatever. Um, until he started having strokes. And it went through this um, cycle of he'd have a stroke, he'd go to hospital, he'd go to Grace McCalla for rehab and then he'd come home. Then he'd have another stroke. And each time, of course, he'd be a, a little bit less able to cope with it. Meanwhile, my granddad had emphysema and probably some early signs of dementia too. He was going downhill. Um, my grandma had already passed away from this time. That's a whole other story, but she came to Jesus on her deathbed, right? I've got to tell you that. But. So <clears throat> I've got this kind of thing going on where I'm sort of balancing between losing, you know, two father figures in my life again. And so we're doing this cycle with Dad, but do you know what the blessing was in that pain and that despair and watching him disintegrate? Was that he wasn't allowed to drink. So in our visits to Grace McCaller and our visits to him around home, all of a sudden he's present. And he's making chutney and he's getting out in the garden and he's building tables and he's... Do you know what I mean? He's actually living a bit of life and he's not working all the time. And, and so while we were never... It ended up being super close, we actually got to have some really real conversations and I got to have him be present. And so um, my granddad passed away. Three weeks later, my dad had a major stroke and also passed away. And you know what? My been up to the hospital with my dad the, the day before and we all got a chance to just be, um, jump up on the bed with him and just give him a cuddle while he was, you know, his breathing's getting more laboured and we all had our, all our family together. And um, got to about 11 o'clock at night and I knew he was probably going to pass during the night but I thought, um, I'm on, you know, duty at Cadenia in the morning and, I, you know, I'll just, I don't want to be there kind of thing. It was just a... So I went back to bed. I got a call at 3 o'clock in the morning to say he'd passed. And then, you know, I was like, should you go to church? Your dad's just died. And I thought, there is no other place I want to be right now than in my real father's house. And I remember going in there, serving, doing what I needed to do, and I'm standing up the back of church, right? And remember, this is the, not the same building, but the same church that my dad had attended, right? So I'm up the back, and I'm holding my grape juice and my bread after I'd given it to everyone else and I'm up the back and Holy Spirit says to me Danny when your dad left you the first time you'd been in church having communion and you were with me and he said now your dad's gone forever but he said I'm your dad and I'm here and I'm with you and so everything had come full circle from the day that um, God first allowed me to see him and who he was in the day I first believed, Amazing Grace. 
<clears throat> to the day that Dad left again. And here I was back in church, having communion and God still looking after me and realising that God had had his hand on me that whole time, despite everything I'd been through and to this moment. And I've had the privilege of speaking all around the world and um, you know, doing television documentaries and you know, all of that kind of stuff and, and being in all different you know, cultures and languages and all of that kind of stuff. And I can tell you, you know what, we all have a story. We all have the same struggles and we all have the same God that's going to get us through it, no matter what. So don't tell me he can't do it. And so where my dad went out still somewhat stuck and not making a decision, my grandma did. And I had the privilege on her deathbed of sitting there praying, wanting to know where she at, Jesus with you, just have her say something to me. She's on oxygen, she had pneumonia, she died of an autoimmune disorder and... Um, my mum wouldn't leave the room for me to be able to ask her because remember, my mum doesn't believe, right? So I pull my Bible out. And I'm just sitting quietly and I said, God, just have her say something to me so I know she's safe, please. Because um, she would often ask to go to church with me or um, say, oh, I'm praying for you in the later years, right? When, when, once I'd come to faith. And so I'd, um, I'm sitting there and God's just giving me verse after verse, Revelation 21, you know, where it's talking about there'll be no more death, sorrow, crying or pain for the former things have passed away. And he's just giving me these random verses and I'm like, wow. We're, you know, getting ready to go and she pulls her mask off and she says, Jesus loves me. She had no idea what I was doing. She couldn't see my Bible. I had it down on my lap. She's laying back up here. And she starts singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And so I grabbed her hand and put her mask back on and we're singing together. My mum pulls out her phone and starts filming it. I'm gone as if she'd want any evidence of this, right? My granddad will go off his chop. So she's singing and then we got her to calm down and I started stroking her head and I sang Brahms' lullaby to her, the same song that she would sing to me when I was a little girl. I was due to fly out to New Zealand the next day to a major conference and I've got this dilemma. Do I stay with my grandma or do I go? And it was actually my mum that said, you know what you need to do. She said, there's nothing more you can do here. The antibiotics are going to work or they're not. But she doesn't know. And you, you've got something you need to do. And it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. So I came back to the hospital about five or six o'clock in the morning. She asked me to pray for her again, so we did that. I got on the plane, um, flew to New Zealand. This was about the Wednesday. Friday, I preached at a school for an evening program. It's a boarding school. And um, got back, Skyped, she was still going, and then about half an hour later I got another um, message and she'd passed. I had to get up on the Sunday and preach, and I tell you, I preached like I've never preached. 
And you know those kids that were being a pain on the Friday night and wouldn't listen? They were in church the next day and we had about 60 people come to Jesus, and including the youth. And one of them had been sneaking out at night, went and confessed to her um, you know, school warden that she'd been sneaking out meeting boys and turned her heart over and gave it to Jesus. So another lady that was there that hadn't intended on coming to this big regional event. Um, and then when someone said who was speaking, she said, oh, I've got that book beside my bed. I'm reading it right now. And she came and she had breakthrough. And we just had breakthrough after breakthrough. We ended up having about 800 people at the event. And so they're going to be people that are in the kingdom there because of that decision. There are people that I've been able to work with around the world that have lost babies, that I'm able to speak into that space because I've been there. Would I rather have my baby with me? Absolutely. But if it means that I know he's safe in Jesus already, that I'm going to have him back in my arms, and a bunch of people find hope and help in Jesus, it's a no-brainer, right? And so each of you have a story. Each of you have a place where you're stuck. There might be people in this room right now that are stuck in unforgiveness or bitterness because of things that have happened to them. There are people in this room that are sitting here that have been abused and have never been able to speak up about that trauma or never had that resolved. There are people who just don't have confidence in life because of the things that they think about themselves that are not true. There are people that are grieving that have never been able to move forward. Wherever you are that you are stuck, don't stay there. Because God can use that for a purpose and a plan. Your job is not to sit in church to just get the healing right. That's an important part. That's what we're here for. That's what, you know, Pastor Melanie and Pastor Andrew do so well at this church. You can feel it literally when you walk in the room. I'm telling you as a visitor, it's amazing. But the last thing Jesus said to us as disciples was to go into all the world baptising them, making disciples, teaching them everything that you've been taught and know that I'm with you always, even until the end of the world. So our job's not to fill a pew. Our job's to support each other, to love one another, to be an example in a community. Our job is to show up as beautiful messes, as we are, right? Anyone who's taken the time to read the Bible knows that Everyone's stories are out there in all their glory. Do you know what I mean? No mess is hidden. Anyone that's stuffed up, it's in highlighter. You know, right? But so is the grace of God. So is the victory of God. And so don't be like little puddle ducks that wander back to the pond and keep swimming around in circles after you leave today. Take this message. Take what God is telling you. Take the pain and the mess of your story and work it through and come to church and be loved but be equipped grow. That's the whole purpose of Every Heart's Cry or any other resources that Brave Enough have are to pick you up. Right? It's to pick you up, to have your story heard, seen, because you are so seen, known and loved by God so that you can be strengthened to then go and help the next person up because nobody is you. 
Nobody has you in particular places, in times, whether it's at the supermarket or standing up here or doing whatever you do at work or whatever he's calling you to do in a ministry that maybe you're too scared to step out in. That's what you're here to do. You're here to spread the gospel, the good news. You're here to tell people, God did this for me and I know he can do it for you. Don't tell me he can't do it. Amen? Amen. You can stand up for me. Hello. This is from Jesus. Amen. I guess my hope and prayer is that many of us that are here are coming back (laughs) um, for what we've got and what Danny has in store for us through Holy Spirit this afternoon and there'll be some wonderful time of ministry and healing but for this moment (laughs) can I ask everyone just for a moment just to close your eyes legitimately close your eyes if you're not accustomed to that try that it's really good helps you sleep trust the people next to you no one's taking your handbag I know you're going to worry about that sometimes don't you but in this space I just want you to to meditate, <laughs> meditation is from the Lord, to meditate on some of the words that Danny spoke and some of the stories that have actually hit home, some of those where, <laughs> some of those may have been triggers for you because the emotion and the feeling is the same of what, as what you've gone through, some of you have been healed of those things, some of you thought you were healed of those things and all of a sudden <laughs> some of that emotion is back. I'm going to ask Danny to pray for us as a group, yeah? That God would actually touch those spaces and places that he would continue to work. Holy Spirit would continue to highlight. Because let's face it, at the end of the day, the best us is the best us for everyone around us. And God does a work in us and through us for those that are beside us, amen? But your step of faith, your don't tell me he can't do it is now. If that's you, if you'd like to be a part of that prayer, I'm not asking you to come forward. I'm asking you to put up your hand and say, Lord, I want to be a part of that prayer. I want that prayer to be for me. It's not for me to see. Yeah? This is for you to step out and say, God, it's me. Yes, I'm acknowledging that. Obviously, there's something there and I need a touch. If that's you, just raise your hand now. Father, each and every hand, God, that's up, Father, those, Lord, that, that are still frightened. Do you know... I reckon I spent years holding on to the front pew.
because I was so scared to raise my hand that someone might see that I've got a hurt or that I was broken. <laughs> Do you know what? It's a fight not worth fighting. Dan, will you just come and pray for all those that have raised their hands? Dear Father in heaven, I just want to pray for every person that has their hand raised and even for those who have got it raised in their hearts, Father. Father, I'm sensing great hurt here today, Father. There was someone here, Father, right now who so desperately wants to ask you into their heart, but they're afraid. They're afraid of what that means in their circles, in their family. But Father, you've got them, you've already got them. Father, we just declare healing on every single person in this room. Father, we pray the chains of generational damage to be broken now in Jesus' name. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, we just want to thank you, thank you, thank you. Father, we pray for pain that's in this room, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. Lord, be gone in the name of Jesus. We cast out every fear, every anxiety, Father. You are the future. You are our healing. You are a God of love. We pray an outpouring of peace, Father, over every single person in this room. Your healing would flow through your Holy Spirit to every single person here. Father, we just ask Father is asking you to claim that healing today to follow his words Father, I open my heart to you I ask you to take all of my pain all of my fear and doubt, everything I've carried to this point, Father, that you would take it, that you would heal those places in me. You would cast out any, anything that's been a stronghold in my life, anything that's kept me feeling bound and broken. And you would release me into a new life with you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, for new life in you. That as Christians, we now have family. We have connection. We have healing. We have freedom. We have a new way forward. We've flipped the script on our story, stepping into a bright new chapter that's going to end so well with health and healing and love for all of eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Amen. Sal, just before I say another word, because I need the atmosphere to change.
change a little bit. Can you put Spotify on? For those listening at home, Spotify's from God. Especially if you've got an account. Don't borrow your friends. Anyway, all right. Now, so the Pentecostal part of me now comes out. Um, if you're not booked in for this afternoon, but now all of a sudden you'd like to come, please